This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some when might find. When it turned red, did you make your left turn? Then the others come. And I followed <laughs> the Chicago left turn. <laughs> Scary, yeah. I think I left. Thank you for having me. Welcome. All righty. We're there. Thank you, ma'am, for joining us. All righty. So um, <clears throat> I reached out to Angelica to have her uh, join us. And she has a book that she's about to release. It is her autobiography. And I had an opportunity to read the book. And I'm not going to um, say much about the book. Uh, I'll let her explain what she'd like to about the book. But I do want to say, um, after reading the book, I sent her an email. And it, it I'm thinking in my mind it's pretty cryptic. So my experience uh, with interrogators uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Five Fingers it's a Lawrence Fishburne movie where he is like the craziest individual you could imagine as a an interrogator and so reading your book I'm like where the hell is the Fishburne character where, where is the, the you know the, there was just not what I expected and so I had to try to reconcile my understanding of what an interrogator is and what I was reading in your book. And one of the things that you very first said, or just a minute ago when we were talking, is don't let the face fool you. You're a different type of interrogator. So, so tell me about that, about being an interrogator. So the connotation of an interrogator for society is what you see in the movies. Hardcore, heartless, you know, hitting, washboarding, everybody talks about that. And that's not how it is. Because what we do is we ask questions for a living. That's what I tell people. We ask questions for a living and we know how to ask them and we know how to follow up. And really for me, the biggest thing that I've taken out of being an interrogator is the other person has to be comfortable enough to open up. So the type of interrogation I do is more like a conversation. It's a conversational type of interrogation. It's still an interrogation because you're being questioned. Anytime you're being questioned and you don't wanna be there, it's considered an interrogation. But my style is just very different. My style is I get you comfortable enough that you start opening up and the next thing you know, you started self-incriminating yourself and you don't even know you're doing it. So, no need to hit you. <laughs> Although I would imagine sometimes you'd want to. Well, you know what I've noticed is everybody wants to be heard. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done or haven't done, everybody wants to be heard. And when you give the opportunity for somebody to be heard, they're going to talk. And a lot of these people, they're holding so much anguish and so much pain and fear that if they get a sliver of hope, they're just going to literally open up. And they do. And what we call that is admission time. How long does it take for the individual to admit to either a crime or something that they've been holding on to. A lot of the people that I get are already pretty much in that position where they're ready to talk. Okay. So you had a, you said something earlier, uh, Warren, and I kind of. Oh no. I, um, do you often get anybody that doesn't have the information you're looking for? No. Everybody that comes in front of me has the information that we need whether it be a source, because it's not just the actual, like I like to say, there's there's different levels. So obviously you have the big fish, that's what we want. We always wanna to get to the big fish, but in order to get to the big fish, you gotta get 
to the little ones first and get led to the big one. And so that's how kind of we start piecing everything together. And so usually we start, uh, we interview sources, we call them sources, or they could be uh, witnesses. And then those people will talk and then we start following the trail up to the bigger, the bigger guys. So, so go ahead, Warren. Do you, um, at what point do you feel uh, that you need to offer something in return for the information? So that's, that's a touchy subject. Um, they're always being offered. There's always offers on the table. I have to tell you one of, one of the biggest offers and probably most valuable one is citizenship, unfortunately. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Because a lot of the things that I'm dealing with is either drug trafficking, human trafficking, terrorism. And so obviously a lot of those people are not U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. mm. So, uh, yeah, and their biggest goal is to be U.S. citizens. Okay. So, so as in, uh, so you do the interrogations also, and you're also an investigator. Yes. Um, how do how do those two professions? Because they're basically professions. Each and every one of them of themselves, you can be an interrogator as a, a complete, you know, autonomous profession, and you can be an investigator. I said interrogator and investigator, or, or two complete autonomous um, professions. How how do they overlap? Well, the invest so for both of them, interrogations and investigations, I always tell people what you see on TV is is all fiction. It's 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 all this made up world of excitement and and it's not how it is. A lot of what we do is is report writing. A lot of it is telling a story. So investigations, you're pretty much investigating, you're following leads, you're trying to piece everything together, where the interrogation is you you just need to get the information out of one person as opposed to a full-blown investigation is an array of different things that you have to do which includes a lot of different people a lot of different locations it's kind of like you're running around with an interrogation there's only one person that you're interrogating so one person has the information that you want as opposed to an investigation needs to be pieced together as a whole okay if so, that makes sense oh absolutely um so, so when you're when you're gathering this information, um, do you usually work as a team? Um, you know, is 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 information handed off to you, and then you go in and do your piece, and then you hand it off to the next guy, or is this is there a you know, an effort and there's powwow meetings and this is what, I, this is my piece of the story. This is my piece of the story, et cetera. So it depends, it depends on what the contract is. So for instance, if I'm doing internal affairs, obviously there's something happened within the government and there, there would be a team involved. There's one person that's considered the lead investigator. So that kind of person is kind of orchestrating the whole investigation or the lead interrogator. What that means is the lead interrogator is the only person that gets to talk to the uh, either the source or the subject or the perpetrator. Because what happens is we don't really want everybody talking to that person because it we, we tend to lose trust. So it just depends on the investigation. If we're doing something that requires um, you know drug dealing, human trafficking, that type of thing, that's definitely a, a huge group effort because there's a lot of moving pieces. It just depends on the actual case. So internal affairs is, is usually just one investigator, one interrogator. But something like drug trafficking or human trafficking, which is an ongoing investigation, there's going to be a lot of investigators involved. So there was um, a while back <clears throat> um, this big, uh, you know, that the, the government failed doing this and that and that agencies didn't talk to each other they didn't share information uh and so things got through um tell me a little bit because you're nodding your head tell me a little bit about that so what people don't know is we don't work together the dea the fbi the cia 
there's not a group effort here. Everybody stands on their own. Nobody likes each other. Everybody is doing their own thing. And it's very unfortunate, but that's how it is. They don't like working with each other. They don't like sharing information. That's just how it is. So that antagonism, like does that- portrays it, huh? I'm sorry, go ahead. Just like the media portrays it. So that's pretty much real, huh? Yeah, it, it really is real. Everybody has their own piece of whatever it is that they're out to accomplish. And, and we just don't, we just don't mesh together. And even when we try to work together, it, it doesn't go very well. There, there's a good story about that in the book that I explain between two agencies. I don't, I don't talk about specific what agencies that the incident mm -hmm. took place, but it, it's in there about how we just don't work together. It's kind of a power struggle. It really is. It really is. Everybody kind of stays in their lane, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Does that antagonism between agencies benefit or is a detriment to the overall everybody's investigations? To be honest with you, I think it's a detriment because I do feel that working together does allow for uh, connectivity and productivity. And unfortunately, because we don't work well together, it just things just take longer. And if you were to talk to different agents from different agencies, they'll always say, oh, I hate this person or I hate this agency or I hate them or whenever they come in. I mean, it, it, for some reason, that's just how it's always been. I think that's the only thing the movie's got right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Did you ask your so questions, Leonard? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you... You were in your position during the time of uh, 911? No, I was in college when 911 happened. Okay. I was a sophomore in college. Yeah. Okay, so so that question wouldn't be irrelevant. Uh how did you get into this? Was you read somewhere you found out this is what I like to do or did you just come here to do this as a profession by happenstance? That's a great question. So I grew up in Cicero, which is a very rough neighborhood in Chicago. It's uh, pretty much low income, low socioeconomic uh, Mexican neighborhood. And unfortunately, at the time, I was uh, dating somebody and his sister was murdered, decapitated and dismembered. She went out with uh, a young man that she had just met. It was their first date and he happened to be a drug dealer. And so she was there at the wrong time, at the wrong place and was murdered with him. And that case ended up being one of the most heinous crimes in the history of Chicago. And he, if you go online and you read through the transcripts of how he killed them and what he, how he tortured them and the process of it. it it's, it's, it's incredibly disturbing, but um, the crazy part about it all is that I was 16 and it really affected me as an adolescent because it's very difficult to process something like that. And so I just knew, I always tell people that people who work for the government or who are agents or do this type of work that you do, you just don't watch a movie or wake up one day and say, I'm going to go do this. It's something, something happens to you that you are compelled to join. Hmm. Yeah. So does the occasional recruitment, uh, you know, we, there's always the, I'm a big movie fan. So I, I guess I get a lot of my information from movies. Um, so I'll, I'll cop to that. <clears throat> um, you know, is there is it the situation where you know you're standing on a corner and some guy bumps into you and goes, "Hey, you want to be in the CIA?" <laughs> I've actually that 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 has happened to some of my friends before, but it's not obviously the CIA keeps an eye out on people and and, and are watching people, especially you know the new I like to call them the new age hackers. These are like the 2021 20, year olds that just know how to hack into everything. We're living in a digital area where everything is about uh, hacking. And so, yeah, I mean, they're watching you. They're watching what you're capable of doing. They're watching you when you're in college. I mean, that's what they do. So yeah, that, that has happened before. That is true. Okay. 
So, um, um, I imagine that uh, um, there is a, you have to try to draw lines, create boundaries between work and, and private life. Um, yes. But, yes. <laughs> so, so how do you manage those boundaries? Well, I try, you know, I explain it very well in the book about turning it off. And I try to turn it off because I read people for a living. I'm really good at reading people. I know when people are lying and I know when they're being genuine. And this just something that I just have in me. And so whenever I'm out and talking to people or meeting new people, as soon as I say what I do for a living, it their demeanor completely changes. So I almost have to say something else, you know, or travel for a living because it, it takes away from their authenticity. And I think it's very difficult for people to be around me because they're almost like, she knows I'm lying or she she's reading my mind. Or I always hear people saying, oh, she's reading me. Are, are you reading me right now? And I always tell people, I'm not getting paid for it. So no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just something that's there. I, I, I Unfortunately, I, I can't turn it off because I do this for a living. I ask questions for a living. So even if I'm trying to get my mail from the mailman, I know what to ask to get the right answer. <laughs> What's the package coming? Wait a minute, I used to deliver mail. What's what, what's the wrong answer? <laughs> hey, well, you know, they always, they always tell you, oh, it should be tomorrow or the next day because they don't really know. All they have to say is, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Afraid to say the truth. I yeah. think I told that a lot of times. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm looking at a scenario. So say um, you're an, you're investigating a drug ring, right? How often is it that you, you're looking up, you see the trail, you know what's going up and down, but you see something, a person high up, and you already know you're not going to be able to get him. He's untouchable. She's untouchable. Does that happen a lot? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, when when Chapo got caught, uh, you know, obviously everybody knew who Chapo was and everybody knew he was a big fish. But in order to indict somebody, you really have to have really good evidence. So a lot of times bad things are happening. People are getting killed. Drugs are being trafficked. And you have to literally just sit there and watch because you have to build and build and build for your case. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't know this, but whenever Chapo got caught, it was $37 million worth of cocaine that he was trafficking. Yeah. So this is not, I mean, we knew it was happening and it was ongoing. This was an ongoing investigation for so many years mm -hmm. that um, you, you, you learn to be patient. You have to be patient for the right time, wrong, right place. So this happens all the time. Unfortunately, especially in a DEA wire room, you hear everything under the sun. I'm talking people getting killed. You hear uh, kids getting tortured and you literally have to just sit there and just be until the right time to, to rush in. Right. Wow. That's got to be hard. It is, it's, it's very difficult, but what I always tell people is you get to a point in your career where you kind of go numb. And I always use the word numb because people can, can associate feeling numb where you just, you're feeling something and then you stop feeling. And I think that that's kind of what happens early on in your career is things really affect you at the beginning and then you just learn to shut it off. Mm -hmm. it, it comes with the territory. Wow. And, and that's the same thing with, you know, taking a life. And, and I explain this in the book. Once you've done it once, it becomes easier to do it a second time. Mm -hmm. So what happens in the military is when you have your first death, then the second one is not as bad, but it's really the mental anguish and torture that carries you on. And that's another thing that I always explain to people. It's not really the physical torture that gets people. It's the mental torment after the physical. Hmm. Wow. I could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I had a brother-in-law that went to Vietnam and he came back. He was really traumatized and, you know, ended up using drugs and talked 
talked about how he was treated and and they a lot of things they say are hard to believe but when you look at some of the behavior and the effect you kind of have to wonder you know they probably were doing some really jacked up mess to these guys oh yeah yeah so um uh i'm kind of caught on that that interpersonal thing so how do you disarm people that you know once you introduce yourself i'm an interrogator and and you know that they're going to wall off immediately how do you then be able because because you still have to connect with people. You still have to, on a, a daily basis, accomplish things that you need to accomplish. And um, just like I had the uh, anticipate, you know, expectations that, um, you know, that that you were a tough, uh, you know, hard nosed individual, and that you know you could slice off a finger and not blink, that kind of thing. But you you still have to be a human being, and you still have to be treated that way by other people. So how, how do you manage that? Yeah. So I think one of my biggest assets is having the ability to connect because the biggest thing is connecting with people. And um, we call it diversity of thought where you can understand where that person is coming from. I think a lot of my background, um, you know, I came from a very low income family and so i kind of understand where a lot of these people are coming from and really is having that sense of identity with somebody because a lot of these people when they see somebody walk in they think this person doesn't understand they don't know what i've been through and so whenever you start connecting at a different level because the way i work is i start asking questions about their past i start asking questions about their childhood and whenever I get them to connect to me at a deeper level, that's when they get comfortable. Because you can't just go in there and go straight for it. Mm-hmm. You got to almost like massage your way through it. <laughs> Pretty much. So no going in there and going right at the jugular vein. <laughs> no, I never, I never do that because what happens is it causes people to get fear. When people get fearful, they shut down. Right. So do you find that's the same thing that happened? Like if you take someone and you're slamming tables, you're punching on them, you're smacking them, you're waterboarding them, you're threatening families. Uh, do you find in general that's an effective way? No, I don't think it's effective because I think that's just the way to get them to say what you want them to say. Right. They just want you to stop. And they're going to say whatever you want to hear for them, for you to stop. All right. They'll even, I mean, it's, it's, there's spaces where people have said, yeah, I did it when they've never even did anything. They were never even there, but they just wanted the torture to stop. To me, that is not an effective way because one, you're instilling more fear in them and they just want you to stop. So not only you're leaving so much on the table, when you do it differently, you get everything that's on the table. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so um, o- over the years, there have been many instances where police officers have been accused of improper interrogation methods um, <laughs> with um, um, suspects. Um, yes. Why then, if we have this technology, we have the Angelica Robleses of the world, why are we um, having such a difficult time implementing reasonable interrogation tactics? Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, that's an easy answer. It's all leadership. It's all about leadership. If you can get away with it, you're going to get away with it. If you're allowed to get away with it, you're going to continue to do it. It all comes down on leadership. If there is not anybody there that's pretty much doing things right, or saying how things need to be. That just, to me, it shows that the leadership is broken mm-hmm. and the leadership is allowing this to occur. And as long as the leadership allows it to occur, it's gonna to continue to occur. Because mm-hmm. in state, in city, state and county level, a lot of things happen. When things in the federal government happen, obviously 
a lot of things aren't covered and a lot of things are kept hush hush. But when things are uncovered, it's very difficult to go back. It's just how they've been working and how they've been managing their department. And unfortunately, when you give power to the wrong person, it gets out of control. And I think we've seen that in this country. Yeah. yeah. You just made me yeah. think about the situation right now in America where we have all of these incidents with the cops and how they're just uh, abusing their authority, shooting people and killing people unnecessarily. And it's like most of the time they know they're going to get away with it. And I think that's a leadership exactly. problem, you know? Exactly. But here's what's really, what's really, really, really sad is that this has been happening for tons and tons of years. Absolutely. And barely now things are starting to come out to the open. And mm -hmm. that's what's sad is that it took this long and it took somebody to be killed on video for a lot of people to wake up and realize that this has been happening before we were even born. Oh, all yeah. the way back throughout the founding of the nation. You know, the right. police were created for as slave catchers is what I'm discovering right. now. And their uh, brutal treatment amongst blacks and other minorities as well. It's just uh, how they started off, you know, and, you know, they're not our, they're, they have a purpose, you know, we need police for certain things, but with that certain mentality that a lot of them have and the, uh, I, you know, I, I question the qualified immunity and things like that too. I, I think it enables them to do too much, but we, we need to change in the system. Well, yeah. Maryland and Virginia have taken steps to do it. Virginia has basically you be a police officer down there and you get out of hand. They got something for you. Like the two cops that just rassed that army lieutenant and he filed civil suit now. Uh, Maryland then got rid of basically then got rid of qualified immunity and police officer bill of rights. There, you know, there are states, there are states that are starting to move that way. Minnesota, who's been in the news, they're actually, their House of Representatives did it, but their version of the Senate refused, refused to do anything. But these, they have to wear when this incidents like the killings of the uh, Minnesota State Criminal Apprehension team, state police investigators come in and investigate it. So, yeah. and, that's, and that's who locked up the lady cop that couldn't tell her taser from her handgun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so let me go back to that qualified immunity. Really? Um, do you feel comfortable uh, commenting on the state of qualified immunity in the United States? I do, I do, because I'm also a minority, as you can tell. So, so I think, you know, I'm going to go out there and say there is a lot of ignorant people that don't understand the history and don't understand really just code of ethics. Like, did we all forget what ethics are? Like, seriously. Because it's not, it just seems like it's a free-for-all. Like, like literally, it sounds like a free-for-all at this point. And I really believe that there's a lot of Americans who are just ignorant and they just don't understand the facts and they see something and run with it and don't really question anything. Mm -hmm. It's always like they're just following. They're following suit with what they think is okay. And they're not questioning, they're not questioning what's so, or they're not questioning what's right or wrong. It's almost that they just, they just see one side. And it's very, very sad because we live in a country where everybody should be welcomed. And this country was founded on immigrants and it was founded on people who were coming to this country to be free, whether it be religious and I, I think we've lost our way completely. We have literally lost our way. So, and it's just. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that was it. 
Yeah. So, so, so my take on, so my, my two co-hosts, um, they're against qualified immunity and, and I take a different approach to qualified immunity. So, so, so help me find my way. I think qualified immunity is necessary in some instances, especially in the instance of police officers, because we give them a responsibility where they can take a life. And, and the reality is, is that you are human and you will make a mistake and you will confuse a cell phone and you will confuse uh, someone's actions. And in that instance, if you hesitate, we could lose you too. So in qualified immunity gives that person an opportunity to perform their job. I think it's important. Now this, there's a recent uh, instance where the, um, I, I can't think of this kid's name, just in the last few days, shot a kid. Um, the video shows that the kid had his hands up. The officer fired, one shot and killed. In Chicago? Yes, in Chicago. Uh, I've forgotten the, the kid, the, the kid's name. But anyway, um, with a review board, here's an opportunity that, um, in this instance, he shouldn't be able to use qualified immunity if he can't prove that his actions were justified, other than him just being afraid. So in other words, he had to see something that would give that would then allow qualified immunity to kick in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult because you know now we're in a day and age where cops are wearing cams now and there's more evidence. And and I I feel for the I feel for them because I, I always go back to fear. Because when you're a cop, they tell you this. They pretty much tell you this. They tell you this when you're an agent too. If you feel that your life is being threatened, then you are allowed, you, you shoot your weapon. And they also tell you, if you're going to shoot your weapon, it's because you're gonna kill somebody. And most of the time when a firearm does go off, a life is taken. And I do believe that it's a lot more difficult now because of the cams, but there's gotta be responsibility. Somebody has to take responsibility. And unfortunately there's that piece of judgment because we do have that footage of the cameras, but I do, I, I always go back to the same thing. There's always going to be consequences for actions, whether they're seen or unseen. I do believe that you just have to almost take take that time, that extra second, and just really think about your decisions. Because I've been put in that situation. I've had 10 guns to my head. And luckily, they did not shoot because I'm standing here. And my, my hands were up. But I always remember, sometimes people just react. They react without thinking. And there's no time to think. And so what ends up happening is, lives are taken and what's happening is this is this has been going on for years and years but now it's coming out to the public and everybody gets to judge you so like in the book there's got to be consequences to actions mm -hmm. sure so um let me get on to a lighter subject um what's it like for women in your industry it's horrible <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you this um so i did undercover and this is this is light and it's actually funny so let me tell you this i did the old school surveillance okay i did the old school surveillance where you're in the car for hours at a time you are not going anywhere okay so let me tell you this for a guy to do surveillance it's very easy to go to the bathroom okay you just grab a bottle and you do your business. For a woman, it is right. not that easy. So we got to do with what we can. And I always tell people, the key word is kitty litter. Kitty litter in a bucket. 
<laughs> so just that simple thing is already difficult as it is. Yeah. Women are not seen as tough and, you know, we're hiding in the bushes. But the funny thing is, is that women are actually better shooters because our hands are smaller and women actually can multitask. So we can actually hold the camera and drive at the same time. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the things we literally, we did old school surveillance. When, when I did cover work back in 2006, it was so different than what surveillance looks like now, because now there's, there's phones. We can track your phone. We can ping your phone. We can hack into your social media. So we know where you're at. Half the time you're posting what you're eating and where you're at. So you're already giving us that information. But when I was doing old school surveillance, we were in the bushes. We were following you at old school way with the camera in the, in the van. So th things have definitely changed. So, so it's difficult. So I, uh, since, since you, you're talking about your book, <clears throat> uh, one of the stories that I really liked uh, was mm -hmm. where you talked about um, uh, that you really stunk. You you didn't get to take a bath for days. And so you, you had to walk around filthy because you had to blend in uh, as part right. of uh, doing, you know, your work. You, you know, you had to, be homeless. You had to actually be right. homeless. Yeah, you have to fit into the atmosphere. And it, it's not the Angelina Jolie with the hair and the makeup going down the side of the building, looking fresh. It's not like that, how it's portrayed in the movies. It, none of that is like that. I mean, we would be in surveillance for 24 hours in a car. So you could just imagine in a car without taking a shower and, you know, going in the bathroom in a bucket of sand. So it's mm -hmm. like, yeah. It, it, it's it's not glamorous, guys. <laughs> Don't be fooled. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Hey, on the uh, situation with the the uh, ten guns to your head or these uh, drug dealers. Um, I can't disclose that, oh. but it, it, yeah, I can't disclose that, and I don't disclose that in the book. But all I can say is that uh, they let me go. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here with you all. So I, I definitely, I definitely survived that. Was it so, smooth talking? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'll have to read the book, but I do explain if you, if you've ever had a gun to your head, there is a process of what your, your, your brain, what it does. And, and I explained it in the book is that you, you look, so you as a person that has the gun to your head, the first thing that you look at is you look at the barrel of the gun and you move up to the arm and up to the shoulder. And then you meet the eyes of, in my case was that one gun that was right in front of my head, but there was mm -hmm. 10 guns in my head. But there's something that happens in your mind where, you know, you heard uh, fight or flight. Yeah. And a lot of people will, will, will flight, they'll, they'll run away. And really in that instance, you have to just freeze and not do anything and right. just let your, your brain catch up and process the fact that you can, your life can be taken in a split second. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, and I told this to, to Leon is that a lot of people, they see torture as a physical thing. And they think that, you know, being held captive or, you know, being uh, beaten up or smashed against the wall or even, uh, you know, not having any food or water or, or clean atmosphere to be in, uh, that's the least of somebody's worries. It's really the, the the mental torture that will follow you after that, that last, that's the, that's the everlasting part. Because your mind is a powerful place. And I, and I talk about that in the book. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you are, um, you own your own company. I do. Um, how did that come about? So I decided to, so I took a two year sabbatical after I left full-time work. I took a two year sabbatical. I went to go work for a global communication company called Equilibria. So I kind of switched gears a little bit and went to do a little bit different things. And I, I felt like I kind of needed that. And when I was done with that, I did about two and a half, three years uh, with it's communication coaching pretty much. 
And I really enjoyed that. So after I did that, I decided to start my own company and start picking up contracts, government contracts or federal contracts. In the, the federal government, there's a lot of contractors and there's a lot of subcontractors. And you can practically do the same thing as an investigator or an agent, but just on a contract basis. When you have that experience, uh, you can start picking up contracts for different things. So I decided to start my own business and start, and, and I really went back. I went back and started picking up uh, federal contracts with a lot of different agencies and also experience. Experience really speaks for itself. Hmm. So now you seem very young doing what do. you do. Um, is that, is that, can I expect the same baby face when I, you know, uh, get interrogated or is it, is it the industry mostly those, you know, grizzled old guys with the stubby beards and the, Yes. Yes. It's usually a white guy with a beard. Yeah. It's always a white guy. Or even the polygrapher is always a fat white guy. It, it never fails. All the polygraphers out there in the world, it never fails. It's always a fat white guy with the glasses and the, and the burly beard. Yes. Wow. Um, so I think, I, I think I have an advantage because whenever I do walk into interrogation, it, it's, and I explain this to people, it takes about three to five seconds for them to be like, Oh, okay, this is different. And within those three to five seconds, I already have my entry because their mind is processing, wait a minute, this is girl just walked in here and she's, she's kind of good looking. So while their mind is doing that, I'm already taking advantage that there's an open space for me to get into their brain because they're all, their, their guards are already down because one, I don't seem threatening and they're, they're too busy looking at who just walked in because it, it took away from them trying to put their guard up. So in those three to five seconds, that's, that's pretty much my entry where I'm like, hi, how are you? And they're like, Oh, and they get all happy. They get excited because they don't know what's coming. <laughs> so what's coming. <laughs> you know what? it's, it's, it's a conversation. I have, I seriously could say that I have this gift where people just feel comfortable and they just open up to me. It's, it's incredible. I could be at the grocery store picking my oranges and the lady will just tell me her entire life story. There's just something there. I, I can't explain it, but it happens everywhere I go. And as soon as somebody starts talking, I literally just lead the conversation with the questions and they just keep telling more and more and more. So by the time I'm out of there, I know where the lady lives. I know who she's married to. I know where her house is. I mean, it's, it, it's like I have their entire life pretty much in like five minutes. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I, so <clears throat> it would be nice if our society um, would allow for people to be that way. But there is a naivety there that oh, yeah. puts people at risk. So, so, so how do we, as a society connect without over connecting. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult because we live in an era where we're stuck on the phone. We're stuck in text message. I feel that we've lost, we've lost our initial way of connecting with people. And obviously we're still in a pandemic, so it's become even more difficult now. But I think you know, what we got going on, technology has really taken away the personality of getting to know somebody because nowadays you can, you can find yourself a date online, you know, it's, it's so easy to connect with people and it always, always boils down to fear. It always boils down to fear. People are fearful and people always have the idea that somebody's out to get them or that nobody has good intentions. And I think that's part of, of how we lost our way because everybody thinks that somebody's out to get you or they don't have the best interest in you for personal gain. And it's, and it's sad, but to be honest with you, it, it starts with you. You're the only one that can say whether you want to connect with somebody or not. It, it, it really, I feel like in our society, we are led to believe a lot of things, especially with the media. 
the media is going to say what they want to say in order for you to believe a certain way. And it's very sad that a lot of us don't have, don't even have our own identity because we're, we're following suit with what the media wants you to believe. And I think that, you know, if they say that this vaccination is going to cure us all, everybody gets in line to get this vaccination. Right. right. So it's sad, but I think it starts with, with individual choice. It's up to you whether you want to connect or not. Did you have a question, Leonard? Warren? Uh, what? Is there a specific type of person that you find that's like the most difficult or the most challenging type of personality to get to open up? Oh, yeah, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, that would be the narcissist because they're never wrong. Okay. Oh, yeah. The narcissist is the worst. So steer clear from those. <laughs> those, are most, those are the most difficult and those are the most, they cannot take responsibility at all. It's like they're, they're never wrong. They will make you wrong a hundred times and they will never take responsibility. Even if they get caught on footage they will still deny, deny, deny. Even if you're showing them, isn't this you? They're like, oh no, that's not me. <laughs> and it's incredible that they, they 100% are so invested in themselves that sometimes you're sitting there like, am I having this conversation by myself? Because this person is not even here. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Those are the difficult ones. Yeah. All right. Just a uh, short follow-up to that. I got a loaded question for you. Mm -hmm. Who do you find the most often the narcissist, uh, the narcissist, male or female? Males. <laughs> oh, that was easy. That females, was an easy one. Females are the most intelligent ones because I feel like they, they actually soften everything. The women narcissists soften everything, whereas as the males kind of just throw everything out there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a big difference. But unfortunately, a, a, a lot of the people that I interrogate are males. I, I probably can count the females I interrogated in my entire career. So, what, what's a narcissist good for? What are they? What what do they excel in besides lying and fooling people? <laughs> you know, they're 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 goal oriented. Even though they act because they fluff everything up. Everything is always fluffed up. Everything is, is great. Anything that they touch turns to gold. Um, so I, I really think that they're probably really good at, at painting the picture. But a lot of times they, I don't even know what they're really good at, really just exacerbating everything. And just, I guess the package, they're really good at on paper. Everything looks good on paper. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm He's always on point. Yeah, I'm getting the picture here, but I won't name any names. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm not going to ask you to explain that. Yeah. So, I don't have to. <laughs> I'm not even going to ask you to explain that. I mean, you just kind of left that out there. I mean, it, it's open for interpretation. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll let them figure it out. <laughs> So the I did want to, I did want to package on paper, you know, but say, not the truth. Sherry, the Sherry's. Truth. Yeah, you know, and I, and I tell this to people is, is you can look, you can look flawless on paper. You can be just exemplary on paper, but then when you open your mouth, it just all goes out the door. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you this question. Um, the last presidency uh, did you use your skills to determine, uh, to, to, to analyze that individual? I did. Okay. I did. <laughs> I, I'm just going to leave it at that. I just wanted to. Very thoroughly, yes. <laughs> I just wanted to, um, to ask that question. So, um, did you go to, you'd learned your skill. How did you learn your skills? Would you, would you 
there was there some classes involved or was some yeah obviously there was there was training there's uh training involved so firearms training um interrogation training but i'll tell you this the best training is experience you can never ever take experience away from somebody and that's really the training that's when the training really what really starts the on the job training because people can show you things in a book or a movie or you can go through you know you can go through the exercises and shoot the guns and fight each other and all that but what really matters is when you're out there and there's no one else there that's when all the experience comes in right 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 so can you say, are you at liberty to say which agency uh, had the most rigorous uh, training, stringent training? I am not at liberty to say that, but they differ. Everybody, everybody that does any agent type of training goes through some extraneous training. That's for sure. I can imagine. But I mean, I'll throw this out there. It's, it's the ones that get the most funding are the most strenuous. Gotcha. That's not hard to figure out. That's right. <laughs> okay. So now I've, um, <clears throat> uh, I, I, I've had a, a slight advantage in asking questions because I got a chance to read your book. So um, while I, um, you didn't put your your whole mind on paper, there was enough there for me to piece together some pretty good things. Um, one of the things that you talked about was terrorists are terrorists. They're going to be terrorists. They, it's something in them that makes them terrorists. So, so tell me a little bit about how you came to that conclusion. So when somebody makes the decision that they are going to instill harm on a group of people, they're all in. I mean, it is, it is all about conviction and it all comes with their belief system because I do explain the different types of terrorists because we obviously have American terrorists living here on, in, in America. And when your belief system is so, so enmeshed and so definite in your mind, there is nothing else that's going to change your mind. And that's really how the terrorist comes alive is there is no changing their mind. They are 100% committed. They are convicted to whatever it is, the cause that they're doing, which is to instill terror on others. And anybody can be a terrorist. If you believe that much and have that much conviction with something, you will do anything to get what you want. And unfortunately for a terrorist, it's like they're all in all in to the point that some of them take their lives mm -hmm. for, for whatever cause it may be, because there's a lot of different causes, as I explained in the book. So I, I got a question about terrorism, uh, U.S.-born terrorism, these uh, inbred national ter terrorists. Why does the government uh, seem to be so easy on these guys it's, it's almost as though they're not taking it serious <clears throat> that's a really good question um i always go back to the same thing i do believe you know obviously what happened at the capitol building i've been to these buildings it is extremely difficult to enter these buildings let me tell you how difficult it is somebody who has clearance like myself who has access to these buildings, I even have trouble getting into these buildings. So I kind of I kind of do explain my take on that that happened in DC is uh it's very simple. They were allowed to be, they were allowed in. Yeah. Anybody mm -hmm. can say nobody was there. Let me tell you, they were allowed to come in. It's evident. And I think it just goes back to power. And leadership yeah and you know we have the most powerful army military in the world and you're going to tell me that on one day this afternoon shit just hit the fan and everybody was having a coffee break right I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and the sad part is that people actually believe that 
that they rushed in and people weren't ready. I mean, come on, guys. It, it, it doesn't take, you know, two cells to rub together to figure out that this, this was orchestrated. And oh, it, earlier, it all comes down to the leadership. If the leadership allows it, it's going to continue. Just like the police brutality and everything that's kind of going on is if it's allowed to happen, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I agree. I mean, I, I heard a report the other day. They said that these guys were coming from 45 states. I mean, so you've got people coming from all over the country and with the eyes that we have seeing all of this, they didn't know it was coming. Come on. I, I just. Well, here's, uh, yeah, here's the other thing that people don't know. So there's something called the dark web out there. A lot of people don't know about this dark web. All these people are communicating. They're setting things up. They're part of these radical groups. And even though they're, they're U.S. citizens, they're part of these radical groups. They're part of these militias. These people actually go and train out in the woods. And, and, and they have these organizations. And they meet up. And they have conversations amongst each other. And, and they plan things. This was planned. Yeah. Everything was planned. People didn't just show up and, and all of a sudden they knew what they were doing. Yeah. This was premeditated. Yeah, we know this, but the question is, what we don't know is how well these organizations are, uh, should I say, what's the word, infiltrated or how much inside knowledge we have. There's got to be some. Got to be there's, there's a lot of knowledge, but the public or, you know, the random, just the, the regular civilian, again, mm -hmm. it comes out to ignorance. People, you know, a lot of people were saying these are people who are ignorant. These are people that live in rural areas. But here's the thing. These people got in. They got in and they were, I mean, you guys saw the, the, the footage. They were not playing. They were there to kill and they were there. They had the weapons. They had the numbers. And, and you know, they had all the tools, you know, they had zip ties and guns and all this crazy stuff that these people had. And I think people just are either they're just blind and they don't know that this is actually going on in our own backyards. Yeah, I know it's it's amazing how people will just can't see what's in front of their eyes, but you know, it has to be uh in my opinion it has to be top down, you know, because Exactly. We exactly. had the forces, we had the power, we had everything we needed to stop it, but for some reason, nobody could pull the trigger. Right. And again, it goes back to the leadership. Leadership. Yeah. 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 Well, what I would ask you is, uh, the fact that the leadership of this country did this and planned this, and tried to keep power, does that argument hold water? Considering that these people that came were his supporters, does that argument hold water? Yes, they were his supporters. As much as people try to say that they weren't, they were. And, and, and it's sad because as soon as he took office, a lot of the racial things really started to brew. We had a race problem in this country. Everybody knows that. But as soon as he took office, mm -hmm. it just exacerbated it. It really just came to life. And it allowed the people who felt a certain way about race in this country to mm -hmm. really come into their own. Because since he took office, you can see the activity of racial crime just skyrocketed mm -hmm. significantly. Yeah, I you know, remember his first speech when first thing came out of his mouth, Mexicans are rapists. Yada. I'm like, what the heck? But I knew the light bulb was coming on and I knew people were going to be rallying around that crap. Yeah, well, it, it allowed those types of groups to really come out of the shadows, you know, because people knew about the KKK and the KKK had been marching. In fact, I think I explained it in the book. Uh, the KKK actually marched in my neighborhood when I was in, a freshman in high school. And they came out with the hoods and the cross and they did their demonstration. Um, but everybody knows that that's, that's an organization that's alive, right? 
But what happened with this presidency is that it literally just came out of nowhere. You were having all these just racial mm -hmm. issues coming up and racial events that were coming up and, and, you know, white supremacy and all this, all these people that were kind of just in the background really gave them the stage to come out and be, and be fully self-expressed in their ideas, which is very scary to see. And it's very, it's very unsettling to know how much racism is, is so much alive and well in this country. Yeah. And the whole, the whole party rallied around that stuff is what's really disgusting. Yeah. So you um, have a security clearance. Um, I do. I have top secret security clearance. Um, did you have to submit your book for um, review before you could uh, print it? I did, uh, but because I don't specifically say what agency the story is from, nobody, I don't think anybody's going to self-incriminate themselves. They're not going to say, hey, that's us right there. We'll take that one. Um, so I, I don't go into detail what agency I was working for or, you know, what happened with the stories. So it's, it's really up into interpretation. I really don't disclose uh any specific name, so a personal identifiable information. I, I don't really disclose that. Um, and really everything that I talk about in the book is personal experience. And, and a lot of it is public knowledge because there is there is a portion in there. And Leon, you know this when I talk about aliens and, and all the funding that went into uh, UFOs and all that stuff because people are still, I can't believe people are still asking whether UFOs are real or not. And I, and I say, do you guys watch the news? Are, are you guys aware of, of all the money that's been spent from the government with UFO research and, and, and the movies or the videos that were, uh, that were leaked, not even leaked, they, they pretty much were shown about yeah. the, the UFOs and, and, and people still question it. And we're talking millions of dollars that the government has spent on UFO research. So if the government is spending money on UFO research, what do you, do you think it's real or not? I mean, <laughs> that's pretty simple. When they go to the link they did to hide all that stuff, you know, something's going on. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So we've reached that. We reached that one hour. Uh, we've taken up quite a bit of your time and I truly appreciate that. Uh, Leonard, did you have anything, a last statement? Uh, thanks for coming with us. And opening our eyes to a few things. Uh, keep keep doing your work and be safe. Warren? Thank you. I appreciate that. No, that's it. Uh, I, I mean, I could ask a thousand questions, but I know she couldn't answer. So <laughs> I, I'm in the same boat as you. There are so many questions I wanted to ask I, that I, I mean, yeah, that I know yeah, she would shut yeah. me down on. So, uh, are so you I able kept to it. Track people. So did you want to make it? Are you able to locate a missing person? Oh, of course. Yeah, that's, that's the easy stuff. Okay, well, I might want to talk to you about that. Yeah, that's the easy stuff. Okay. So did you have uh, anything you wanted to say uh, before you leave, uh, before we end, Angela, Angela, Angelica? Yeah, definitely, you know, just pick up your book and, and read it, have an open mind with it. And and just really the, the reason for the book was to just don't allow your past to defy you or don't allow your past to, to seep into your future. You know, things happen all the time and we just have to keep moving and, and, and being the people that we need to be and, and be positive because I always have a positive outlook. And, and as you know, Leon, you read the book, uh, there's, something, there's something great in that book. Uh, a lot of it was horrifying and a lot of it was very difficult to, to process. So it's a great read. Um, and then hopefully picked up for a movie. That would Hopefully. be nice. So uh, if you'd like to give your um, internet address where people can, you know, find out more about you and about your book, uh, and yeah. then we'll get out of it's here. Very, yeah, it's easy. It's just www.angelicarobelesofficial.com. All the information about the book and updates will be on the website, including your pre-order. You can pre-order the book online. So again, I want to thank you so very much. We've had a great time this evening. Um, I we I have a million more questions that I know you can't answer, so I'll 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 email them to you and then let you ignore them. 
<laughs> All right. Thanks a lot for coming. We enjoyed you, Thank and you. I'll definitely send you a message on that person. Definitely. So if I can get Thanks you to, so I can get you to hold on Thank for a second. You. I'm gonna close the show, and I'm gonna a couple more things for you, and then we'll get out of here. That concludes this episode of Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.